And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is August the 9th, 221st day of the year. 144 days remain till the year's over with. The um, interesting thing is this year is just racing by. Well, you all have asked me to give holidays and observances. Today is National Book Lovers Day. The Vasi Divas, that's the struggle of the tribes and Indian subcontinent. Annual Persid Meteor Shower Peaks tonight. You go up on your rooftop if you don't fall off and experience the Persid Meteor Shower Peak tonight. Co-working day. Hold Hands Day. International Day of the World's Indigenous People. Hagasaki Memorial Day. National Psychiatric Technician Appreciation Day. National Rebecca Day. National Rice Pudding Day. National Veep Day. National Women's Day. Singapore National Day. And Suriname Indigenous Peoples Day. Alrighty. Well, a lot of interesting things happened on this date in history. In 48 BC, Caesar's Civil War, the Battle of Parcellus. Julius Caesar decisively defeated Pompey at Parcellus and Pompey flees to Egypt. 378, the Gothic War, Battle of Andrianople. Large Roman army led by Emperor Valens, defeated by the Visigoths. Valens is killed along with over half his army. Not a good day. Number 73, construction of the Campanile of the Cathedral of Pisa. You know it better by the name of the Leaning Tower of Pisa begins. It'll take uh, two centuries to complete. Probably done by the lowest bidder, based on the outcome. 1329, Quinlan, first Indian Christian diocese, is erected by Pope John XXII. French-born Jordanus is appointed the first bishop. 1428, sources cite the biggest caravan trade between Padvasaki and the Republic of Ragusa. Vlachs committed to Ragusan Lord uh, Tomo Bunik. They will, with 600 horses, deliver 1,500 modiuses of salt. Salt was quite valuable in those days. Derivia was meant for Debrezen Vesiokovic, and Vlachs' price was half of the salt that he delivered. 1500, Ottoman-Venetian War. The Ottomans capture Bethony in uh, Messina. 1610, the First Anglo-Powelson War begins in colonial Virginia. 1810, Napoleon annexes Westphalia as part of the First French Empire. 1814, American Indian Wars. The Creeks signed the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Gave up large parts of Alabama and Georgia. 1830, when Philippe became the king of the French following abdication of Charles X. 1842, the Webster-Ashburton Treaty is signed, establishing the U.S.-Canadian border east of the Rocky Mountains. 1854, American transcendentalist philosopher Henry David Thoreau publishes his memoir, Walden. Then later on, I think we had on Walden's Pond and after Walden and who cared about Walden? The entire series. 1855, Ellen War, the Battle of Lena begins. The, uh, yeah, the Ellen War was the operations of a British-French naval force against military and civilian facilities on the coast of the Grand Duchy of Finland in 1854. That was during the Crimean War between the Russian Empire and, and France and Britain, who were allied. War is named after the Battle of Bomersun and Allen. And although the name of the war refers to Allen, skirmishes were also fought in the other coastal towns of Finland on the Gulf of Bothnia and the Gulf of Finland. It was quite a uh, Donnybrook, by all accounts. 1862, American Civil War, Battle of Cedar Mountain. Cedar Mountain, Virginia, Confederate General Stonewall Jackson narrowly defeats Union forces under General John Pope. 1877, American Indian Wars. Battle of the Big Hole. 
small band of Nez Perce Indians clashed with the U.S. Army. The um, it's called Montana Territory between the Army and Nez Perce tribe, as I said. Both sides suffered heavy casualties. Nez Perce withdrew in good order from the battlefield and continued their long fighting retreat to result in their attempt to reach Canada and get asylum. Located in Beaverhead County, the battle sites between the Continental Divide and Chief Joseph's Pass and the Town of Wisdom. The uh, the army was commanded by John Gibbon, who was a colonel. And the uh, the Indians were uh, commanded by uh, Chief Joseph and the Looking Glass. Eighteen ninety-two, Thomas Edison gets a patent for a two-way telegraph. Eighteen ninety-seven, the first International Congress of Mathematicians is held in Zurich, Switzerland. Nineteen o two, Edward the Seventh and Alexandra of Denmark crowned king and queen of the UK of Great Britain and Ireland. Nineteen o seven, first Boy Scout encampment concludes at Brown Sea Island in southern England. Nineteen twenty-five, a train robbery takes place at. Kokori, near uh, Lucknow, India, by the Indian independence revolutionaries that were re uh, revolting against the British government. 1936, Summer Olympics, Jesse Owen wins his fourth gold medal at the Games and really upsets Adolf Hitler. 1942, World War II Battle of Sable Island, Allied naval forces protecting their amphibious forces during the Initial stages of the Battle of Guadalcanal surprised and defeated by the Imperial Japanese Navy Cruiser Force. Ninety forty-two. Dmitry Shostakovich's Seven Symphonies premiered in, in a besieged Leningrad. Ninety forty-four. The U.S. Forest Service and the Wartime Advising Council released posters featuring Smokey the Bear for the first time. 1944, World War II, the Continuation War, the Vyborg Petrozavodsk Offensive, the largest offensive launched by the Soviet Union against Finland during the Second World War, ends in a strategic stalemate. Both Finnish and Soviet troops at the Finnish front dig into defensive positions and the front remains stable to the end of the war. 1945, World War II, Nagasaki is devastated when an atomic bomb called Fat Man is dropped by the U.S. B-29 boxcar. 35,000 people are killed outright, including 23,200 and 28,200 Japanese war workers, 2,000 Korean forced workers, and 150 Japanese soldiers. Also in 1945, the Red Army invades Japanese-occupied Manchuria. 1960, South Kasai succeeds from the Congo. 1965, Singapore is expelled from Malaysia and becomes the only country to date to gain independence unwillingly. 1969, Tate LaBianca murders. Followers of Charles Manson murdered pregnant uh, actress Sharon Tate, the wife of Roman Polanski. You may have seen her in the Beverly Hillbillies several times. Beautiful young lady. They also murdered coffee heiress Abigail Folger, Polish actor Wojcik Rakowski, men's hair stylist Jay Sebring, and recent high school graduate Stephen Parent. 1970, Lanza Flight 502 crashes after takeoff from Alejandro Velasco Esteti International Airport in Cusco, Peru. Killed 99 of the 100 people on board as well as two people on the ground. And as I've always said, if you get hit by a falling airplane, you're having a bad day. 1971, the Troubles. In Northern Ireland, the British authorities launched Operation Demetrius. The operation involves the mass arrest and internment without trial of individuals suspected of being affiliated with the Irish Republican Army. Uh, mass riots followed, and thousands of people flee or are forced out of their homes. 1973, Mars 7 is launched from the USSR. August the 9th, 1973, Mars 7 is launched from the USSR. 1974, as a direct result of the Watergate scandal, Richard Nixon becomes the first president of the U.S. to resign from office. Vice President Gerald 
I hadn't seen anything. I can't trip over. Becomes uh, Ford becomes president. 1991, Italian prosecuting magistrate Antonino Scapoletti is murdered by the Andrea on behalf of the Sicilian Mafia while preparing the government's case in the final appeal of the Maxi trial. For those that are not familiar with the Maxi trial, it's a criminal trial against the Sicilian Mafia that took place in Palermo, Sicily. Lasted from February 10th of 86 to July 30th of 92. It was held in a bunker-style courthouse, specially built for the purpose. Sicilian prosecutors indicted 475 mafiosi for a multitude of crimes relating to mafia activities based primarily on testimony given as evidence from former mafia bosses turned informants known as the Pentetti, particularly Tommaso Buscetta and Salvatore Contorno. Now, most of the defendants were convicted. 338 people were sentenced to a total of 2,665 years, not including eight, not including life sentences handed down to 19 of the bosses. Convictions were upheld January 30, 1992, by the Supreme Court of Italy. Um... But this was the first time the existence of the Cosa Nostra was finally judicially confirmed. <coughs> now, the interesting thing, we still had J. Edgar Hoover refusing to admit that anything like that existed. His FBI would have handled it had it did. I reared it to in 1993, the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan loses a 38-year hold on national leadership. 1995, Avia Teca Flight 901 crashes into the San Vicente Volcano in El Salvador, killed all 65 people on board. 1999, Russian President Boris Yeltsin fired his Prime Minister, Sergei Stefashin, and for the fourth time fired an entire cabinet. 2006, at least 21 suspected terrorists are arrested in the 2006 transatlantic aircraft flight, which happened in the UK. The arrests are made in London, Birmingham, and I welcome an overnight operation. 2007, Air Maria flight 1121 crashes after takeoff from the Maria Airport in French Polynesia, killing all 20 people on board. 2012, Shannon Easton becomes the first woman to officiate an NFL game. 2013, gunmen opened fire at a Sunni mosque in the city of Keita, killing at least 10 and injuring 30. 2014, Michael Brown, an 18-year-old African-American male in Ferguson, Missouri, shot and killed by a Ferguson police officer after reportedly assaulting the officer and attempting to steal his weapon. And, of course, as is usual, that sparked protest and unrest of the city. 2021, the Tempiri light rail officially starts operating. Well, we've talked about a number of things over the last um, few shows. Some of them, I guess you could say esoteric, and some of them um, down to earth. Well, we've been talking in yesterday's show about what you might consider the the real history of America. Um, a lot of the information that is put forth by historians and archaeologists is in keeping with the uh, tenets laid down by the powers that be. Um, for example, for many, many years, they insisted the Mayas were the very first civilization on uh, North and South America. Actually, that wasn't true. And the uh, the archaeologist who discovered the evidence was castigated for daring to fly in the face of established order. Well, we were talking about um, Estella, that uh, sterling found in South America. 
and Graham Hancock, who is an outstanding author, goodness, written quite a number of books about um, alternative history. Um, he was written about the anomalies associated with the Olmecs, and he actually went to the ruins at La Venta, a civic ceremonial center, and home to one of the oldest pyramids in Mesoamerica. And he said later he was absolutely dumbfounded at the immense complexity of the structures he saw. Of course, the powers that be said anything before the Mayas were just um, semi-literate hunters and gatherers. He said in the center of the park stood an enormous gray boulder, ten feet tall, carved in the shape of a helmeted African head. Now, this is in South America, mind you, an African head. Here, then, was the first mystery of the Olmecs, a monumental piece of sculpture more than 2,000 years old. And it was unmistakably the head of an African man wearing a close-fitting helmet, similar to what you have seen in the movies of the Romans, with a long chin strap. Plugs pierced the lobes of the ears, and the entire face was concentrated above thick, down-curving lips. Be impossible for a sculptor to invent all the different combined characteristics of an authentic racial type, unless they were using a member of that racial type as their uh, guide. The portrayal of an authentic combination of racial characteristics implied strongly a human model had been used. The uh, the, the uh, structure was 22 feet in circumference, weighed 19.8 tons, was 8 feet tall carved out of solid basalt and displayed clearly an authentic combination of racial characteristics. So the Olmec um, sculpture peanut galleries tuning up as you can hear uh, with physiologically accurate images of real individuals. And uh, clearly they were charismatic and powerful African men in Central America 3,000 years ago. And of course, scholars have yet to be able to uh, explain it. And then going back to the, the Stella that he saw, which is a carved um, structure similar to the Washington Monument, he said the encounter seen on it, because the carvings did show a scene for some reason had to have been of great importance to the Olmecs hence the grandeur of the stella itself and construction of the remarkable stockade of columns built to contain it and as was the case with the African heads it was obvious that the face of the bearded Caucasian man could only have been sculptured from a human model one was carved in Low relief on a heavy and roughly circular slab of stone, about three feet in diameter, dressed in what looked like tight-fitting leggings, features of those of an Anglo-Saxon. So how did someone in South America have enough contact with Anglo-Saxons to carve an image on a stella? The figure that was carved had a full-pointed beard and or a curious floppy cap on his head. And around his waist he had a sash. Hardly the um, clothing style of those in South America, at least in my experience. I spent three years there. These Caucasian figures carved in the stones were uncovered from exactly the same strata as the Olmec heads. Levanta figures in their attire resemble reliefs in Abydos, Egypt that depict the Battle of Kadesh. The tight charioteers shown in relief all have long, elaborate robes and the shoes with turned up toes. It's what I said in yesterday's show that it puts me in mind of um, the Middle East. According to Hancock, it's by no means impossible that these great works preserve the images of peoples from a vanished civilization that embraced several ethnic groups. And strangely, despite the best efforts of archaeologists, not a single solitary sign of anything that could be described as the developmental phase of the Olmec society has been found anywhere in Mexico. 
these amazing artists appear to just come from nowhere. You know, in the development of any civilization, there are various stages that society goes through. But with the Olmecs, and to a certain extent the Egyptians, they just appeared. And I would suggest that uh, rather than developing slowly, the Olmec civilization emerged all at once and fully formed. Transition period from primitive to advanced society appeared to have been uh, so short that it baffles modern archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians. Technical skills that should have taken hundreds or even thousands of years to evolve or came into use almost overnight with no apparent antecedents whatsoever. Well, a vivid picture of the end of the Olmec civilization is found in the uh, ancient city of Monte Alban. That city stands on a vast, artificially flattened hilltop overlooking Alaska. It consists of a huge rectangular area and enclosed by groups of pyramids and other buildings that are laid out in precise geometric relationships to one another. And ask yourself this, how did such separated societies such as the Olmecs and the Egyptians come up with the same structures? And build them the same way. Hancock also went to that site. He said he made his first visit to the extreme southwest corner of the Monte Alban site. And there, stacked loosely against the side of a pyramid with the objects he had come all that way to see, several dozen engraved stella depicting Africans and Caucasians, equal in life and equal in death. The Monte Alban, though, there seemed to be carved in stone a record of the downfall of some of these um, what he referred to as masterful men didn't look as if this could have been the work of the same people who made uh, the Laventa sculpture the standard of craftsmanship was far too low for that and whoever they were these artists had attempted to portray the same subjects he had seen at Laventa and there the sculptures uh, had reflected strength and power and vitality and Monte Alban, the uh, remarkable strangers were, in effect, corpses. Some were naked, most were castrated, and some were curled up in fetal positions as though to avoid blows, and others just lay small, one more time, sprawled as if dead. In an annual conference of the Institute of the Study of the Americas, Cultures. Mike Zhu, a professor of modern language and literature at uh, Texas Christian University, suggested the possibility of direct Chinese influence on the Olmecs. And I have read other um, essays about the fact that uh, the Chinese actually made an attempt to colonize uh, Mexico and Lower California. According to uh, this professor, carved stone blades found in Guatemala date from approximately 1100 B.C. and they're distinctly Chinese in pattern and share uncanny resemblance to glyphs from the Shang Dynasty. Problem is not whether Asians reached Mesoamerica before Columbus. The problem is when did they arrive and what did they do while they were here? Any proposal makes that smacks of diffusion in today's academic climate is immediately dismissed as irresponsible at best and malevolent at worst. Here are all these American scholars speaking European languages, and they dare to say no, there was never any diffusion. All Western Hemisphere cultures are indigenous. And that's the problem I have with the average scientist. They don't get their hands dirty and get out there and actually root around in the dirt and find the truth about what they make their living off of. Um, Richard Deal wrote a book called The Olmecs, America's First Civilization. You know, that book is 200 pages long, and he spent only a brief part of the discussion on the subject of diffusion. He said the origins of the Olmec culture have intrigued scholars and lay people alike since... Traces of Poultice Colossal Head 1, a gigantic stone human head with African features, was discovered in Veracruz 140 years ago. 
And since that time, Olmec culture and art have been attributed to seafaring Africans and Egyptians and Nubians and Phoenicians and Atlanteans and the Japanese and the Chinese and any number of other wanderers. And as often happens, the truth is infinitely more logical. If less romantic, the Olmecs were Native Americans who created a unique culture in southeast Mexico's Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Now, what's interesting to consider is if, in fact, the Olmecs developed in Mexico, where did the progenitors of that culture come from? They found a lot of a tree? Archaeologists now trace Olmec origins back to pre-Olmec cultures in the region. No credible evidence for major intrusions from the outside. And not a single bona fide artifact, he says, of old world origins ever appeared in an Olmec archaeological site. So all theories and evidence of transoceanic contact were just dismissed out of hand. And it's important to note how difficult it is to determine what a bona fide old world artifact would be. Since old world and new world artifacts are often indistinguishable. Well, while excavating the Mexican state of Veracruz in 2006, archaeologist Maria del Carmen Rodriguez discovered her stone slab with 3,000-year-old writing previously unknown to scholars. Covered in a carved symbols that appear to be those of a complex writing system. And according to her, finding a heretofore unknown writing system is rare. One of the last major ones to come to light, according to scholars, was the Indus Valley script, recognized from excavations in 1924. And now scholars are tantalized by a message in stone and a script unlike any other in a the text they can't read. You're excited by the prospect of finding more of this writing and eventually deciphering it, perhaps on a window on one of the most enigmatic ancient civilizations. And the inscription on the Mexican stone has 28 distinct signs, some of which are um, repeated for a total of 62. It's been tentatively dated at least 900 B.C. and maybe even earlier. That's 400 or more years before writing was known to have existed in Mesoamerica, the region from uh, central Mexico through much of Central America, and by extension, anywhere in the hemisphere. Previously, no script had been associated unambiguously with the Olmecs, which flourished along the Gulf of Mexico and Veracruz and Tabasco. Till now, the Olmecs were known mainly for the colossal stone heads that they carved and displayed at monumental buildings in their cities. Several paired sequences of sequences of signs have prompted speculation that the the text may actually uh, contain couplets of poetry. Experts who've examined the symbols on the stone slab said they would need many more samples before they could hope to decipher and read what's written there. According to them, it appeared the symbols in the inscription unrelated to later Mesoamerican scripts, suggesting this Olmec writing might have been practiced for only a few generations and may never have spread to the surrounding uh, cultures. And beyond exa- uh, advanced uh, linguistic and literary systems, the Olmecs also seemed to have uh, possessed advanced knowledge of mathematics and navigation. It was astronaut Gordon Cooper became interested in the Olmecs during his final years with NASA. He actually went on a treasure hunting expedition to Mexico, and he found Olmec ruins, which led to a startling discovery. According to what was written, one day, accompanied by a National Geographic photographer, they landed in a small plane on an island in the Gulf of Mexico. Local residents pointed out the uh, pyramid-shaped mounds where they found ruins and artifacts and bones. In the examinations uh, back in Texas, the artifacts were determined to be 5,000 years old. And Cooper said when they found out the age of the artifacts, they realized that what they'd found had nothing to do with 17th century Spain. Well, 
Cooper, together with Pablo Bush Romero, a, uh, the head of the National Archaeology Department of the Mexican government, worked with Mexican archaeologists and uh, put together a group that returned to the site. And after some excavating, according to Cooper, the age of the ruins was confirmed, 3000 B.C., Compared with other advanced civilizations, relatively little was known about the Olmecs. They were engineers, farmers, artisans, and traders. They had a remarkable civilization, by all accounts. But it's still not known where they originated. Among the findings that intrigued Cooper the most were celestial navigation symbols and formulas that, when translated, turned out to be mathematical formulas used to this day for navigation, and as well as accurate drawings of constellations, some of which wouldn't be officially discovered until the age of telescopes. So why would they have celestial navigation if they weren't navigating celestially? And that was a very interesting question. And if somebody helped the Olmecs with this knowledge, who'd they get it from? Well, the enigmas left behind by the Olmecs are staggering. Stark contrast to nearly every assumption held about pre-Columbian cultures, a lot of evidence suggests the people from distant civilizations arrived on the, the continents discovered by explorers such as uh, Lewis centuries before. So was there a similar influence to, that could be found in North America? And if there was, was it still having an impact at the time of Lewis and Clark? Well, Meriwether Lewis wasn't the first adventurer to suffer a dark fate while discovering secrets on the American continent. Fifteen oh eight. Sixteen years after Columbus's first voyage, Juan Ponce de Leon discovered gold on the island of Puerto Rico. In a short span of time, the people of the island paradise were extinct. Many died in battle defending their homeland. Others died of diseases incurred during their enslavement by foreign invaders who came to exploit rich stores of gold ore and other precious sources. And like Lewis, Ponce de Leon's discoveries made him an instant celebrity and one of the richest men in the New World. Well... It's true, he had a slightly less glorious early career than Lewis. He begun his naval career as a pirate for hire, attacking ships belonging to the Moors. And this experience earned him a chance to undertake a journey to the Americas at the same time as Christopher Columbus. He was making his second trip to America, to the West Indies, as part of a costly excursion financed by the King and Queen of Spain. The Leon sailed from the port of Cadiz and arrived on the Caribbean island dubbed Hispaniola. That comprised the islands now host to the Dominican Republic and Haiti. That's where he began his explorations. And like Louis, Ponce de Leon had a reputation as a fearless adventurer who reveled in the um, chance to serve his superiors by exploring the American continent. Primarily in search of riches, you know. His arrival at Hispaniola marked the explorer's first connection with the region alleged to host the fountain of use. And it was probably here that he first heard about the favored, the fabled fountain. Though there's those that suspect he'd already been exposed to the legend during his days of looting Moorish ships. Well, preserved in Joe de Miato is the oldest known story that mentions the Fountain of Youth. It's a poem written by the Muslims in an encoded language. It's called uh, Alexander the Two-Horned. That's the translated title, don't you know? It tells the story of Alexander the Great going to the island of darkness to find a Fountain of Youth. It is possible, and some have speculated that Leon was aware of the tales via his exploration of Moorish and Muslim customs. 
and the fountain was also mentioned as part of the apocryphal letter of Prester John that appeared in 1165 in Europe. 300 years later, in a world unlike anything they could have imagined, the Spanish explorers may have been enticed by similar legends that they heard from the island natives. The exuberance enjoyed after the discovery of new lands could have easily encouraged De Leon to believe if anyone could find that legendary fountain, it'd be him. After drifting past the Bahamas and the Florida Keys, he made landfall on the North American mainland, which he mistook initially for an island. Thinking he was still in the Caribbean, he dropped anchor and went ashore somewhere north of what would become the city of St. Augustine. Well, in 1514, he went back to Spain to report his findings. And he assured uh, the king and queen that the fountain of youth was somewhere in those isles. And for their part, the king and queen were sure that De Leon could find it. On his next excursion, he sailed with 200 men and enough supplies to establish a colony. Landed on the west coast of Florida and what would become Charlotte Harbor was attacked by Calusa natives. Poisoned air wounded De Leon and most of the Spanish soldiers and colonists were killed. Man like Louis, De Leon's appetite for adventure and exploration led to his untimely death. Few survivors of that skirmish at Charlotte Harbor returned to Cuba where De Leon died from his wounds a month later. Well, coincidentally, in his initial discovery and in his last battle, De Leon had crept within a short distance of lush areas of deep, fresh water sources in Florida. One is near the city of St. Augustine and another in Zephyr Hills. And the site of his last battle with the natives was a short distance away from Warm springs, uh, warm mineral springs of Northport, Florida. These massive springs go down 2,000 feet. Well, despite the gruesome scuffle and the death of Leon, the search for this fountain continued. Spanish conqueror and explorer, Pinfilo de Navarraz, attempted an expedition from Cuba but was caught in a hurricane. The fleet of ships was destroyed and the survivors washed ashore near modern-day Tampa Bay. Only a man by the name of Cabaza de Vaca and 30 companions actually survived. Their intention was to reach Spanish settlement in Mexico and regroup there, but after a battle with hostile natives, they rafted their way into southwest Texas. Traveling west along the Colorado River, de Vaca and survivors of the ill-fated expedition became the first Europeans to see a bison, that is, a, an American buffalo. De Vaca went, returned to Spain nine years later and published his story. And as you might guess, for the time, it became a bestseller. And then it were references to the encounters with giants, which coincidentally was a recurring theme in Native American folklore. In fact, DeBaca's tales talked about an encounter during a raid. He wrote, when we attempted to cross the large lake, we came under heavy attack from many giant Indians concealed behind the trees. And some of our men were wounded in this conflict, for which the good armor they wore did not avail. The Indians we had so far seen were all archers, and they go naked, larger body, and appear at a distance like giants. They're of admirable proportions, very spared, and with great activity and strength. The bows they use are as thick as the arm, of 11 or 12 palms in length, which they discharge at 200 paces with so great precision they miss nothing. Well, in 1539, Hernando de Soto sailed nine ships into Tampa Bay. And they ventured inland, they encountered the friendly Timacuans, customary for the explorers to ensure their safety by holding captive the tribal chiefs. And this was, of course, done diplomatically as an invitation. After some initial reluctance, the chiefs agreed to become DeSoto's guest. Well, when the natives realized becoming guests meant being turned into slaves, the local tribes, led by Chief Kapafi of the uh, Appalachian, sparked an uprising. After weeks of warfare, the chief was finally captured in a battle near what would become Tallahassee. He was described as a man of monstrous proportions. Now, some of these legends of giants and the search for the fountain of youth are being cast in new light thanks to the work of some researchers, such as uh, Dwayne McCullough. He found different rock islands within Key Largo that contained springs that are unique in composition thanks to exposure to abundant amounts of nit uh, nutritious sea salts. 
And these concentrations are attributed to tidal pressure and seasonal freshwater flushing from the Everglades, collecting and mixing within the aquatic park uh, pathways that run through cracks in the coral bedrock of the upper Florida Keys. His research suggests that these rare sea salts contain traces of gold, which is generally greatly diluted, of course, in seawater. And because gold could have been concentrated as a salt by the evaporation of seawater nearby uh, Florida Bay and further collected as a heavy metal at the bottom of other basin-like lagoons, it could have been mixed into the local spring waters of the area. And that discovery, together with a new understanding of the health benefits of dietary gold salts and how they can improve cell memory, sheds new light on the old legends of waters that impart immortality. There actually is a scientific basis to... um, the fountain of youth. Nutritious salts are common in almost all briny lagoons in the Caribbean. Sulfur, which when bonded with a metallic element, creates salts such as calcium sulfate and sodium sulfate and potassium sulfate. These are essential tissue salts found in any healthy body. And science has discovered that these tissue salts and several other salt compounds are useful in maintaining proper health. If they're not supplied as part of our uh, daily diet, the process of aging accelerates. Now, these elements don't oxidize at all. And concentrated by the unique evaporation and flushing processes of Florida Bay, they create a golden elixir that can neutralize the aging process if assimilated properly. Research by McCullough and others has helped revi- uh, revive a new interest in the fountain of youth. Some historians speculate early Spanish explorers may have been close to discovering these wondrous waters and missing them in some instances by just a few miles. American magician David Copperfield claimed he discovered a true fountain of youth amid a cluster of four small islands in the Exuma chain in the Bahamas. He uh, purchased these islands for $50 million in 2006. He told Reuters, I've discovered a true phenomenon. You take dead leaves... They come in contact with the water and become full of life again. Bugs or insects that are near death come in contact with the water and they fly away. He said it was an amazing thing. Copperfield, who's now 52, says that he hired scientists to conduct an examination of the mystical water, but uh, he hadn't offered any further information. Property developed Michael Ballman purchased an apartment complex in downtown Miami for $8.5 million in 1998. He planned to build a luxury condominium in, in its place. After tearing down the older apartments on the property, he was obliged to commission a routine archaeological survey of the site. Bob Carr of the Miami-Dade uh, Historic Preservation Division was called in to conduct the examination. They discovered holes that had been cut into the limestone bedrock. Surveyor Ted Riggs, upon examining the layout of the holes, theorized they were part of a circle, 38 feet in diameter. Excavation of the path he laid out revealed that there were 24 holes forming a perfect circle in limestone. Examination of earth removed from the site led to the discovery of an array of artifacts ranging from shell tools and stone axe heads to human teeth and charcoal from fires. Miami Circle represents the only evidence of a prehistoric uh, permanent structure cut into the bedrock of the U.S., Signs of an ancient civilization in the Americas predating Columbus's area and the native tribes are abundant, even if they're cataloged incorrectly or ignored. Ponce de Leon, Cabaza de Vaca, and Hernando de Soto, while they were looking for the Fountain of Youth, they're mapping the state of Texas, believed it to be an island, opened the door to further exploration. And this exploration unearthed the remains of a city in an earthwork complex called Big Mound, which is situated between the Florida Everglades and the Pitney Flatwoods. In other words, in spite of the Smithsonian Institution's assurances that the Mayans were the first civilization, there's a lot of evidence that they're incorrect. And if what they find doesn't fit in with their theories, it gets relegated to the basement. Well, Hernando de Soto had encounters with giants as he pushed further inland in 1539. He traveled more than fifteen, more than six hundred men and two hundred horses, walked through North Florida, southeast the southern swamps of Georgia, and the landlocked crossroads of uh, western Alabama. Rodrigo Ronhal, the 
this other private savage wrote a diary um, detailing what happened on the expedition. The new lands explorer ruled by the Native American chief Tuscaloosa, who probably had his headquarters somewhere in Alabama. According to uh, Ranhell, the settled and 15 soldiers entered the village, and as they rode in, they saw Tuscaloosa stationed on a high place, seated on a mat. And around him stood a hundred of his noblemen, all dressed in richly colored sleeveless cloaks and graceful feathers. He said Tuscaloosa appeared to be about 40 years old, and he was a giant. And his limbs and face were proportioned to the height of his body. He was handsome, but had the look of ferocity and grandeur on his, of the spirit. He was the tallest and most handsomely shaped Indian they saw during all their travels. Well, the diary, which was eventually published in 1547, gives a concise account of failed peaceful negotiations and subsequent uh, mayhem. As the uh, cavaliers and officers of the camp who proceeded to Soto uh, rode forward, and arranged themselves uh, in his presence. Tuscaloosa took, Tuscaloosa took not the slightest notice of him, made no move to rise even when DeSoto approached. According to Randhell, Tuscaloosa was seated on top of a mound at one end of the square, sitting like a king. After a few days of talking and watching colorful war dances, Tuscaloosa joined DeSoto on their quest toward Mobile. And while on the trail, two soldiers turned up missing, when DeSoto asked Tuscaloosa about their whereabouts, he said he wasn't—he was not the white man's keeper. When Ranhell went on to describe the Spaniards' approach to Mobile, scouts rode out to DeSoto and warned that many Native Americans were gathered for rebellion. But DeSoto, of course, being a conquistador, was brave and defiant, and he approached the town and its high walls, welcoming a committee of painted warriors. Dressed in robes of skins and headpieces with vibrantly covered feathers, came out to, to greet him. A group of young Native American maidens followed, dancing and singing to music played on crude instruments. In spite of a movie I saw the other night, there were no electric guitars. DeSoto entered the town with his most trusted soldiers, Tuscaloosa and the chief's entourage. Spaniards stood in a piazza, surrounded by a stream of foreign colors and fluttering sounds. From where he was standing, DeSoto saw some 80 houses inside the village. Several of them were described as large enough to hold at least a 1,000 people. And unknown to DeSoto, there were more than 2,000 Native American warriors in concealment behind the walls. After some of the chiefs from the town joined him, Tuscaloosa withdrew into the village and warned DeSoto with a severe look to, to leave at once. Well, despite the, uh, the warning... They didn't, and in the, the ensuing hail of arrows, DeSoto and most of his men did retreat from the village, finally. After regrouping and devising their strategy, the Spaniards gained entrance to the village, set fire to the buildings, and massacred the city's inhabitants. Despite the death and devastation, Tuscaloosa escaped. Riding deep into unknown lands, uh, DeSoto and his men marched to capture him again. But the giant's chief had disappeared. I'm sure Spaniards found only abandoned cities with massive mounds. And these mounds remained standing throughout the south, especially the Mississippi Valley. Well, Professor Robert Silverberg has written about the Native American history. And he said the Mississippi mound builders seemed to already have been uh, declining when the Spaniards arrived. Native Americans of the southeast uh, slid into a less ambitious way of life. Huge mounds were no longer built around the old mounds. The familiar festivals and rituals continued, but with not the same enthusiasm. So their meaning was forgotten, and the villagers no longer knew that it was their own great-great-grandfathers who had built the mounds. All the Native Americans of the Temple Mound regions were only, had only faint and foggy notions of their their own history. He suggested the mounds stretched so far back into antiquity they really weren't built by Native Americans. 
From Oklahoma to northern Georgia, exploration of these mounds has unearthed a variety of items ranging from simple shells and ceramics and pipe stones to extravagant ceremonial copper axes. Hundreds or maybe thousands of mounds were built in the Mississippi Delta. Radiocarbon dating has shown the decline of the mound builders' population began more than a, a century before the Europeans arrived in the region. And the decline and desertion of these people is still a mystery. Well, during the time of the conquistadors, there was only one group of Southeast Native Americans who appeared to be able to trace their heritage back far enough to include the mound builders. And these people were the, the Natchez, who, along with the Choctaw and Chickasaw tribes, were the primary travelers of the natural trail, which they shared with migrating bison and deer and other animals. Later became the, the route Lewis and Clark made famous. Their empire stretched from the Delta to the swamps of Louisiana. And it's a stretch of land that Meriwether Lewis would become all too familiar with. We know from his writing, the writings of uh, French Jesuit Pierre Charvaux that the Natchez rebelled unsuccessfully against the French in 1729. There's many, many stories about death and destruction. Everything the conquistadors and early explorers touched seemed to revolt. The few survivors became scattered among other southeastern tribes or looked on as wise and gifted with mystic power, as did the ancient sages of the other tribes. The Natchez had uh, legendary tales of invaders from a region on the other side of the world, and they described the mounds as the work of an earlier people. And as the early explorations of America continued, there seemed to emerge mounting evidence of a civilization in the Americas that preceded the natives encountered by early explorers. Explanation for the oddities, such as a race of giants, would require reversible, long-established intellectual and religious dogma. It seemed less of a task to continue to accept the belief that the Native Americans discovered by Christopher Columbus were the original mound builders. 1881, the Smithsonian began to actively promote that idea, which today has found its way into the federal government's Department of Education as part of the elementary school curriculum. As a result, the Smithsonian has been charged with effectively withholding information that supports the theoretical framework known as cultural diffusion, diffusionism, which is the simple logical belief that throughout history, people interacted via worldwide travel and trade. But the powers that be at the Smithsonian refused to accept that. So everybody else fell in line and parroted what they wanted said. And we're going to talk more about this in future shows. But until tomorrow at this time, because we run out of time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. <laughs>